excited about today because of, of what we're starting, where we're going. We're, we're uh, starting a, a um, 17-week journey in the book of Romans. We're going we're gonna to talk about the book together. We're going to then spend a chapter a week going through this book. And so one of the things I want to do this morning is talk a little bit more about why. And um, why relates into, to some extent, a little um, just my own processing in which Actually, there were some things that I shared last, um, last Sunday that were, in fact, out of the book of Romans, and I've been wrestling with some of that since then. Um, God has convicted me personally concerning some of the things that I said. Um, part of that related to how in the midst of a time of stress and demands upon us and requirements that are pressed upon us in this pandemic, that creates a stress. And we, we work that out in, in different ways. We have a lot of different conclusions and convictions about that. And yet, uh, one of the things that I, I mentioned was or I wanted to focus on is our need to be gracious and understanding toward one another. That uh, we, we need to, where we can, we do need to submit to the things that our civil authorities are asking us to do. And yet I was reminded, and, and to be, to be uh, honest with you, I, at times outside of our assembly together, when I'm here at worship, I am wearing a mask. But there are other times when I really, I really don't want to and prefer not to and um, have not... Um, been as careful about that always personally, individually, as I, as I should be. And my own message and reflecting out of that chapter, Romans chapter 15, just reminded me that uh, for us together as church, this is an opportunity. There's all kinds of other requirements and there's perspectives that we have on it, but all that can be turned together as church is this is a way that we will yield our own will or rights for the Lord. That, to me, this has become, I guess, in, in uh, opportunity that I do need to submit to other authorities, including civil authorities. Maybe you wrestle with that with how you drive. It's another good example where we run into that. But for right now, it's, it's, it's this. And... Um, I need to let the Lord just give me some practice in submitting to a requirement around and about with others, whether I like it or not. And I just wanted to share with you that if, you're, if, you're, if, if you do wrestle with that, well, you're not alone, that many of us are and do. And uh, yet, um, there are some things that we've, we have said and our, our, our elders have determined that in our worship together, there are things that we can do um, concerning the... the um, requirements that are in our society and those and those we will try to do uh, to the best of our ability there are some things that we're not we don't feel in conscience as a church in faith we're able to go along with that there are things that we do in worship and there are things that we do even why I'm not wearing a mask right now and communicating God's word that that um, for for some people to see my lips and be clear about what I'm said for some of the rest of you to see my nonverbals that I I speak for God and as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians we do that without a veil and so that's a matter of, of, of faith and conscience for me and so if we if I have to draw the line in certain things and I'm I, I personally Personally, I need to be careful about where I can yield because, to be honest with you, Bob also needs exercise. I need to develop spiritual muscles of submission. We all do. I think that's good for us. So, um, 
that leads to, for instance, another one of the questions I was asked in our Monday, um, our Monday uh, small group where we talk about the passage that I will be preaching on the next Sunday, why Romans? And it wasn't a challenging, oh, I really don't want to do Romans, but, but it was a good question that, well, why are we doing, why are we spending 17 weeks of our year in this particular book? And I was reminded of that question on Wednesday when the events of Wednesday unfolded, where we, where we saw the um, protest um, really devolve into a riotous affair bursting into the U.S. Capitol building. And one of the things I heard various leaders say in the midst of that was these words, this is not us. What's happening in there is a complete anomaly that this is not us, this is not who we are. Have you heard that? You probably heard it other times earlier in the year when there were protests coming from another end of the political realm that people would say as well, this is not us, this is not who we are. And yet I beg to differ. To some extent, it must be because there it is happening in our midst now, not that it included everybody and not that any of you or I would have imagined storming the U.S. Capitol building, okay? And yet, well, I read strange things in the course of the week. I was reading something uh, about um, why people kill people and uh, the, the dynamics of that in a society. And one of the points that this author of this article made was that 99.9% that, uh, of the people in any population will never actively entertain the idea of killing another person. And that's good news. I'm glad to hear that. Aren't you glad to hear that? Feel a little safer going out of here this morning. Now, that was probably a study done before all this um, present tension and stress of the COVID era. So the, the odds have probably gone up just a little bit. But, but, and yet, didn't Jesus say, if you have hated your brother, you have murdered him in your heart? What we see on the extremes actually acted out in the open tells us something about the human condition as a whole, and thus it tells us something about us. As we spend time in the book of Romans, folks, it's going to tell us something about us. It's going to tell us some things about us that aren't necessarily flattering, things we don't necessarily want to hear but must hear. In fact, we cannot rightly understand the gospel if we don't hear them. So that's one of the reasons that God has given us this book to remind us of what he has done for us. And in that, we're going to be reminded in some unflattering ways in the early chapters about ourselves because this is the gospel for fallen humanity who is then justified by faith in Christ to new life and understanding what God has lifted us from his undeserved grace toward us is going to fuel our, it's going to feed our Christian life. We're not just learning to know some new things about theology and about the Bible. Somebody uh, shared some, a thought with me in, the, in between the two services, something he hears on another radio program, and that is that learning is for living. 
that the things we will learn here is because this, this truth is intended to change our lives. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to give an introduction, kind of an overview. Where does the book of Romans fit? And yet, I wanted to keep from trying to say too much at one time. Bob has a problem that way. Bob can say too much at one time. So I prepared this, and you in the second service get an extra blessing. You get the second edition. There was such a demand for these that we had to go to a second edition, which is the some of the typos corrected edition. <laughs> because fortunately in our church, there were gracious people that showed me all the errors that I had in the first edition. But um, that just speaks to my humanity, my need for the gospel, and your need for a corrected version. So there are these on the back table as you came in. If you already picked one up, you can also after others have had a chance, you could take one of the corrected second editions. Don't leave the one you already picked up back on the table with your germy fingers having been all over it for somebody else to pick up. But um, I, there, there's a lot of intro information in this that is just meant to give you some background as we go forward in this book, the things that will be helpful to you as we are reading it together. So why Romans? Romans is a uniquely foundational book, and I needed to give you a little bit bigger picture to tell you why. Look at that. They're already running for those editions. Ryan, you're a pastor. You should have left that for somebody else. I said that just so I could call out Ryan. <laughs> okay. The, um, the, 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 there's a way to think about the different kinds of books in the Bible as a whole. First, let's go back to the Old Testament. There is a, a foundational section there is a historical or directional section, and then there's an instructional section or corrective section. The foundation in the Old Testament is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of Moses, everything else in the Old Testament stands upon that and points back to that, reflects upon that. There's nothing else in the Old Testament that doesn't stand upon that foundation of the books of Moses. So you have a foundational section, and then you have a historical or directional. How did God, God's people live in light of that foundation, that covenant that was made, that revelation from God? Well, the historical books describe that sometimes they lived well, Joshua, Ruth. Sometimes they did not live so well in light of that revelation. Those historical books go from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. They cover the various epics of history, time in the Old Testament period. And then within that period of history, within that flow of history, the wisdom and prophetic books are given and they give instruction, further instruction concerning that foundation and correction of God's people, calling them back to that foundation. That would be, that, that's the books of, of wisdom, Psalms, Proverbs, and especially the prophetic books. The uh, preaching and the writing of the prophets was to call. They were not innovators giving all kinds of brand new information. They were calling God's people back to the foundation and how to live in that foundation in their now present circumstances. Okay? So take that Old Testament model. I gave you that one so I could tell you this one. The, the, in the New Testament, you also have a foundation. What would be the foundational books in the New Testament? It would be the Gospels. There's no fuller revelation. In fact, Hebrews puts it this way, that God who spoke to us in various times in various ways to our fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. Boom, mic drop. There it is. There is no fuller revelation than that. Okay? 
And then there's a history. There's a history. Well, how did the church, how did Christians early on live in light of that foundation in the gospel? And where did they go with that? And so the book of Acts is historical, where you see sometimes the church struggles, sometimes the church lives very well in light of that revelation. And you also have a transition of that foundation extended outward from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria even to the ends of the earth. And then you come to the letters or the epistles and the book of Revelation. And these are that continuing instruction and correction. Some of the epistles are very heavy in the correction. Think of 1 Corinthians. Think of the book of Galatians. Most of them are speaking to certain circumstances and needs, questions that have arisen, particular challenges a local church is facing. One of those is a very general instructional letter, and that is the first one the book of Romans. Romans is also the longest of the epistles, any of them, not just Paul's. It's the longest of all of them, but it's unique among them in that it doesn't speak to particular needs and questions and concerns in a particular church. It's written to a particular church, and yet in that way it is different. So the book of Romans is, is, is Paul's letter to this church in Rome, which if we started from the Gospels and all of a sudden we come to the book of Romans, we'd wonder how in the world did we get from Jerusalem to Rome? And the Acts, the book of Acts unfolds that. It takes us, the book of Acts ends, in fact, with Paul in Rome. So you fit in the writing of the book of Romans round about Acts chapter, the end of 19, the beginning of Acts chapter 20. And it's, 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 it's foundational for the church in that it's written, it's written to a church that Paul Want, is also responsible for. He wants to make sure they have a right and solid and true foundation upon which to build and grow, and yet he can't get there. Romans is unique in Paul's letters to churches in that he didn't go to Rome. He didn't plant the church at Rome. Even Colossae had influence from Paul while Paul was in Asia. Colossae was a near neighbor to Ephesus where Paul has administered for three years, but he's never been west to Rome. And yet there's a church there. And by the people that he names and lists and greets in chapter 16, it's a church that is populated by many people that he was up to his elbows with in ministry over many years in the course of these various missionary journeys to different places who then migrated back to Rome at various times. And they are there, and they've started a church. So Paul sort of starts this church through his spiritual children or grandchildren if you will. And yet, he bears some responsibility to it. So, in the midst of the flow of the book of Acts, and let me catch you into that historical context, we'll, we'll, we'll arrive at why Romans is written and thus why we need to read it. So, come to about Acts chapter 19, and Paul's in the, at the end of his third missionary journey. He has spent three years in Ephesus, ministering there. He's finally run out of town. There's that big riot in the theater and all of that. And uh, he, he takes a last trip now up around through Macedonia and back south then through Athens and down to Corinth. And while he's at Corinth, well, while he was at Ephesus, 
he makes a couple of visits to Corinth. and he, He's writing letters to Corinth. He comes around, he goes to Corinth, and he's now involved in finishing this collection of financial aid from the churches among the nations, the Gentile churches, for Christians in Jerusalem and Israel that have been, are, they're poor, they're suffering, they're persecuted, they're under great hardship because they have been ostracized from their own families and society and culture and businesses. They're in hard times. And the, the rest of the churches, as they have shared spiritual riches from the church in Jerusalem, they are now going to give and share in, in physical help to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul is finishing the organization, the collecting of that gift to be taken back. And he's now in Corinth. And he's ready to, to get on a boat there at the Centuria, which is the eastern harbor from Corinth, to go back across the Mediterranean and to Antioch, Syria, and also then down to Jerusalem with this gift. And yet he's thinking back toward Rome. He would like to keep going west, but he needs to return again East. He needs to finish this offering, finish this gift that has been given. Then he hopes from there he eventually then will be able to come to Rome and then even be helped by them from Rome to even go further on to more unreached places in Spain. Paul has been working to share the gospel where it hasn't been preached. And uh, Rome has the gospel. That's why he's not desperate to go there, although he wants to go there too. He wants to encourage them. He wants to be encouraged by them. He wants uh, their help and partnership with him in extending the gospel even further west from Rome. All that is, is um, what's in his heart when he would like to go to Rome, and yet he must turn back east one more time. So that brings us to Romans chapter 15. You thought that brought us to chapter 1. But it brings us to 15, where Paul gives his purpose. He tells this church why did he write this letter to them. And why he wrote it to them is why we need to read it too. He says in, in Romans 15, verse 14, three verses here. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. He is not worried about the church. He has not heard of, of serious heresies that need correction. He has not heard of the kind of moral and social issues that have arisen in the church in Corinth along the way. That apparently hasn't happened in Rome. He's not, he doesn't have those kind of concerns. He is very confident of their ability to, among one another, equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's a healthy church. And yet a healthy church, a, a strong church, a growing church still needs to feed, that, feed their faith on God's foundation. And that's Paul's responsibility. He is God's apostles to the, apostle to the Gentiles. He's responsible for the church of Rome founded through his children and grandchildren, spiritually. So he says in verse 15, On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that for the purpose of, here's why he wrote Here's why we read it. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he sees all of these churches that he's had the privilege to be a part in 
their founding and ministry. He sees all of these churches and all of these saved. And Julia, in her baptism this morning, he sees that as an offering of the nations back to God in thanksgiving for his grace. We all, in lives of worship, are an offering back to God to be, to be purified, to be made ready, to be well-pleasing, to be shaped and molded and perfected and set apart for God's perfect work for us, not only in this life, but in eternity. That's what God is up to. You are precious in his sight as, as his joy and treasure for eternity. You are an offering lifted up to him. You are a trophy of his grace working in the world. That's who we are. And yet, that is not merely for what God will do in the midst of time, but how he is shaping us, equipping us, growing us, building us for his purposes for us all into eternity. Okay? And for that work, to that end, that is why he writes these things to the church at Rome that he can't get to yet so that this offering of you will be accepted, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that God will do his work in you through these words to you. Learning is for living. This is about God's working in us, his purposes building into our lives. The, um, this, the, the, an overview of the book of Romans, if that's true, then what Paul writes is aimed at what God has done for us and the change that makes, the difference that makes. The first 11 chapters are all about what God has done for us. The, you could divide the book of Romans along the lines of doctrine and duty. Things God has done for me, things I would then do in response. This is what God has done. Look what God has done. And then we live in what God has done. That baptismal formula that we heard again this morning. Raised in Christ for a purpose. To walk in newness of life. That's what God has done for us. We, we, we need to know and be reminded of it. And one of the things about a baptism in his church is it reminds us God did, has done that for each one of us who believe in Jesus. We have been joined with him in his death. We have been raised with him in newness of life. We can walk in his new life. And Romans re reminds us, Paul says, boldly of that foundation. So we're reminded of what God has done for us that we might live in what God has done for us. So that's the, that's the, that's the two-part division of the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, look what God has done. Now, there will be application chapter by chapter all along the way. We're not going to wait and not know how to step into any of this until 12 weeks from now. But when we get to chapter 12, you're going to see a hinge. You're going to see a turning because there it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, please, by the mercies of God, on the basis of all that God has done for us, those mercies are chapters 1 through 11. To then present, yield your bodies a living sacrifice. That sacrifice that is being sanctified and perfected, pleasing to God in our lives for his glory. That takes knowing what God has done for us, that we can live in it. Because that present your body as a living sacrifice, what was it based on? Therefore, 
looking back to chapters 1 and 11, by the mercies of God, which are what chapters 1 to 11 unfold for us. So we're going to be talking about the mercy of God, God's grace to us, and the call then that God's grace to us places on us in our lives and how we then live in his grace. So there, all that is by way of an overview so that we can poke into the first couple of verses with whatever time I have left in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is a, a, a standard opening for a letter. It follows a, a, a normal template like you've seen in your emails. There's a, there's, a, there's a to, there's a from, and there's a subject, right? Well, there's also a blind carbon copy, the BCC. The blind copy is to Brush Prairie here, that God gave this letter to the church at Rome through Paul so that all of the churches since then could have it, that we could live in that same privilege that they were given. So we'll see that same, same from, to, and subject in these opening seven verses. It's from Paul, and he extends this one out quite a ways. Who is Paul? Paul is a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, this, this gospel of God concerns Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus, who was descended from David in his humanity according to the flesh. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, all peoples, anybody everywhere including you, who are also the called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all, here's the two, to all those who are in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints, here's the subject, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans is going to be all about God's grace to us in Jesus. For peace with God, peace with one another, Peace in life according to God's purposes for us. Let me unpack a little bit of that then. That's the introduction. Okay, it's from Paul. Paul's a servant. He is called as an, as an apostle with special responsibility to the churches among the nations. He's set apart for the gospel of God. There's something about that set apart that I've always liked. We are not set apart from other things. We are not set apart from things we must give up. In fact, if you focus too much on the things you must not do, you're going to spin yourself into a spiral. We are set apart to the gospel of God. And this book is going to focus us on that. It's going to focus us on God's gospel, his grace toward us, what God has done for us that we can live in light of that. Somebody once told me if they, if, they, if they focused their time and attention on what it was that God called them and gave them the privilege to be able to step into in his new life, they found they didn't have to worry about all the things they weren't supposed to do because those things, like dead fruit, fell off on their own. Set apart for the gospel of God. A gospel that is not plan B. It's not because, well, the Old Testament thing, that Israel thing, that didn't work out. We've got to come up with something new. What then will we do different that maybe will work? No, this is promised from beforehand all through the, through the scriptures. There's an Old Testament roots in the Davidic promise and even in the Abrahamic covenant before then and even, in fact, in the words to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall that one of her seed 
would crush the serpent's head. And that phrase is going to come up for us in the book of Romans. That there are, there are Old Testament roots, but there's a New Testament revealed that, that the Messiah, the Christ, was far more than, than they anticipated that he would be. He is the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness upon him. There is his virgin birth born by the Spirit. There is his sinless life and his resurrection from the dead. He is fully human and truly human and dies thus a truly human death for us, and yet death cannot hold him. Because of his sinless deity, he's raised from the dead. In his resurrection, declared to be who he was, God's Son, our Savior. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there's a dangerous word in the Roman first century, that Jesus is Lord. That was a term that was used of the Caesars. That could sound like insurrection talk. But it's not merely that there's a new king in town. There is a new Lord for me in life. Jesus clarifies this. There's no reason for Jesus' followers to to storm Caesar's palace or even to, to storm the praetorium there before Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem because Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not by the means of this world. My kingdom is of God. If my kingdom were of this world, then my, my, my followers would have already stormed this place. They would already be fighting, but they're not because it is not. But the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. I'm not diminishing that at all. We look for, we long for that day. In fact, the anxiety of our age and the tensions that are there hunger for it. This is an environment that there is, there is, uh, the need is greater than ever before for us to be telling of the one who is our peace. In an age where between the two and what are we to do, there is no peace available. And yet this one, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus Christ, our Lord, trusting God's sovereignty Through this Jesus of Paul's gospel, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship. Read apostleship like messengership. It doesn't mean that you're you're an apostle like Paul or Peter was an apostle. Those were capital A apostles. Those were apostles proper. But we are apostles generally in the sense that we also are sent ones from God. That we are ambassadors for Christ. And when Paul says we here, he's including far more than just he and his friends. When he opened the letter, oftentimes he would say Paul and Timothy or somebody else to a particular church. He doesn't say that here. It's just, it's just Paul. But here he says we, and you wonder, well, who are the other we's involved here? He explains it in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You also are messengers. You also are ones who have received grace. And the purpose of the grace and privilege of being God's messengers that we have received, what is God's goal for the church? What is it that we're supposed to be pressing toward? Is it merely that everybody hears the gospel and believes in Jesus and will be with our Lord in heaven forever? Is that the aim and end of the church? I would say no. 
The aim and end of the church actually is specified here by Paul. He says it here, and he'll say at the very end of the letter, we are called for the obe- to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. For Jesus' glory among all people, we are to bring about the obedience of faith among all people. What is obedience of faith? This is a phrase, Paul opens his letter with it, And in verse 26, the closing verse, he closes his letter with that same phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith. Yet, it's a phrase that is often overlooked in Paul's writings because we think about Paul and the gospel of grace through faith. Uh, Obedience sounds like something that, that, that James would probably be talking about, right? But the obedience of faith, quite simply, folks, is this. Chapter 12 and verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The obedience of faith is following Jesus in living new because of what God in Christ has done for you. That is the obedience of faith. The problem often in in the Christian life today is we're trying to do the obedience apart from faith. We're weak on what we know and believe and trust and have sunk roots into about what God has done for us, but we're eager to try and do what we think God wants us to do. And we don't have any roots upon which to bear the fruit. The obedience of faith is an obedience in new life and yieldedness to the Lord and following Jesus that grows out of what I believe and trust that God has done for me in Christ. Obedience of faith is a wonderful kind of obedience. It's that fruit. They have a, they have a funny tree down south. It's called a live oak. I suppose they have them other places in the south. I ran into it in Mississippi. Live oak was a funny tree. All the other trees would lose their leaves in the fall. The live oak wouldn't. It hung on to those rascals. It kept them around. And the live oak leaves, would, they, would, they would be dying, and yet they didn't fall off the tree. You think, what's going on? Well, we've got to get these leaves out of here. You could get up there with a leaf blower, I suppose, and you could be blowing those leaves off the tree if you wanted to. But you didn't need to. When the new growth would come in the spring... Then it happened. They pushed the old growth off all by themselves. There wasn't a need to climb up that tree and to pick off all these leaves because you needed to make room for new. No, the new came and it pushed the old out of the way. And that, that, that illustration of new life pushing out the old that doesn't fit anymore stuck with me over the years. And obedience of faith, I think, captures that idea. A new obedience that flows out of my faith in Jesus and what God has done for me in Christ. That's a a deep well out of which to draw all that I need for life and godliness. Paul spends 11 chapters, 11 chapters telling the church what God has done for us in Jesus before he asks us to do really much of anything. Isn't that odd? Isn't that wonderful? Look what God has done. And out of that, you see, obedience of faith simply says that what you believe feeds and fuels and directs whatever it is that you do. 
In fact, everything that you do today, the things that you're doing, the things that you do that you don't know why you do them, the things that you do that you wish you didn't do. Have you got something like that in mind? Got something? Surely you do. All of us do. The thing that you do that you wish you didn't do, you do that thing because you're believing something. And you're believing that this will meet some need. You're believing that this will satisfy. You're believing something that leads to that behavior. Everything we do flows out of something we believe. And Paul spends a lot of time saying, folks, believe this. It'll change everything. The obedience of faith among all nations to all those who are in Rome, loved by God, called to be saints. We are loved by God. Can I give my division one more time? Verse chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans, you are loved by God. Look what God has done for you. On the basis of what God has done for you, look at chapters 12 to 16, called as his saints, unique, holy, set apart, special ones, his privileged possession. We will live new in that calling as saints, to the, to the extent that we realize, oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Knowing that, I wrote this down for me. Knowing and understand God's gracious love to us is God's grace or help for us. This letter, folks, having the book of Romans is God's grace to us. We think of God's grace in terms of salvation. Amen. We think of God's grace and his enabling help, his provisioning, strengthening by his spirit in our lives to live and walk with him. Amen. This book, having the Bible and having this particular letter to Romans in our Bibles, this is God's grace to us for life and godliness. There are some, uh, some of our discipleship groups are going to be starting here shortly. There, some of those groups are going to be tracking with us in the book of Romans. They're, they're, they're going to be reading through the book of Romans or call it the gospel of Romans every week. And along with that reading every week of the whole book, which takes just over an hour, it's not so much, they're also going to read each day the chapter that we're focusing on that week. And as we spend, you say, how, how can I get something out of the book of Romans? Read it. Commit yourself to it. Let it do its work. Let it soak in, and it will change us. And that'll be for God's glory. This is God's unique and gracious provision for us from God for our faith and life. I want my life to be different. I want my life to be more. For that to happen, my faith must grow and deepen and broaden and be different and be strengthened. And one place that'll happen is right here in this book. Join us. Next 16 weeks, let's pray. Father, would you do that from your word? Would you use this book and our time together in it as you have promised to use your word? You have said that the entrance of your word gives light. Father, we need your light in the midst of the times around us, in the midst of the darkness in our own minds at times. Lord, we need your light. Lord, we need to know what you've done for us in Jesus. 
so that we might grow in how we follow you in Jesus. Indeed, Lord, let it be so that in these six weeks that our learning is for living, that you work these truths out into our lives in ways that bring you glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.